0: Father, we abandon ourselves into your hands and ask that you do with us what you will. Whatever you may do, we thank you. We are ready for all, and we accept all. Let only your will be done in us and in all your creatures. We wish no more than this, O Lord. So into your hands, we commend our souls. We offer them to you with all the love of our hearts. For we love you, Lord. And we so need to give ourselves, to surrender ourselves into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence. For you are our Father, And Lord, with these words, we feel the weight of them. And we ask that maybe if we're not quite to the place of confidently abandoning ourselves to you, we ask that you would help this to be our desire. This is what we want to want even if we don't fully want it yet. So we ask for your grace to find its way in and go as deep as it can go in us. And would you slowly tap on the places that you can't get through until we open the doors? As we hear the words that you have given to our friend and our pastor Andrea, we ask that our ears would be open, our hearts would be opened, our minds would be opened, and we ask not only for the ability to listen well, but to learn well and to be courageously obedient with what we have heard. And we ask this in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Hello, my name is Andrea Mosshart, and I get the privilege of being the missions pastor at the 8th Street Church. And one of the things I love about the 8th Street Church is that we say that we want to help one another in real ways, and we want to have real conversations and um, we want to live vulnerably in, in front of each other. And I'm so thankful that I've learned to do that as a leader in this church. I'm so thankful. Our gospel lectionary text for this week is um, found in Mark 8, 27 through 38. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Um, so some people are coming down with Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of these and leave them on your seat or um, you can have it. If you do have a Bible, you can leave it on your seat. You know what I mean. So the Gospel of Mark is the second book in the New Testament, and um, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word? Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea and Philippi. And as they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say you're one of the prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. Then Jesus began to tell them the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the law. He would be killed. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter and said, get from me, Satan, he he said, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must take up... On, you must you must give your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up my life for the sake of the, of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message... In these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. Maybe may be seated. <clears throat> <laughs> Woo! Got through that part. <laughs> All right. So, in Mark chapter 8... Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea and Philippi. And for the casual reader, without any geographical context, this sounds no different than Jesus took his uh, disciples down the road to the neighboring village. However, just coming from Bethsaida, that means Jesus decided to take his disciples on a 32-mile round trip to Caesarea and Philippi the only recorded trip Jesus took to that region or anywhere remotely like it. And whenever I first read 32-mile trip, I thought about taking a trip in a car, and it felt like no big deal, like driving from here to Yukon, Oklahoma. But Jesus was poor, and his disciples would have been on foot, and this would have been no small journey. Caesarea Philippi was established by the Greeks as a Hellenistic city, where, they worship, where the worship of God, of the god Pan was centered. And by the early 1st century, Caesarea Philippi uh, was hated by Orthodox rabbis, and it was taught that no good Jew would ever visit there. In fact, in Jewish theology, this place was an area of evil departed spirits. Like, it was haunted. That's what they kind of thought, that there was demons there. It was scary, like Halloween stuff. And it seems odd... That Jesus would decide to take his disciples, who would all be considered themselves good Jews, to this location. I wonder what they would have thought along the way. Why are we going all this way to visit a place that's haunted and demonic? A place that scares us. This city, which sits on the foot of Mount Hermon, butts up against a large cliff. And because of the many shrines built against it... It's referred to as the Rock of Gods. And shrines to Caesar, Pan, and other gods, possibly the fertility goddess, Nemesis, were all built up against the cliff. And in the center of the Rock of Gods is a huge cave from which a stream flowed. And this cave was called the Gates of Hades because it was believed that Baal would enter and leave the underworld through places where water came out of it. In the open-air Pan Shrine, Next to the cave mouth, there was a large niche in which a statue of Pan, a half-goat, half-human creature, stood, worshipped for its fertility properties. And surrounding him in the walls were sm- smaller niches in which statues of his intending nymphs. On this shrine, in front of the niches, worshippers of Pan would partake in bizarre sexual rites, including copulation with goats, worshipped for their relationship to Pan. And so, (laughs) one day, (laughs) Jesus took his disciples and said, Hey, we're going to Caesarea Philippi. (laughs) If he even told them where they were going, he might not have. I wouldn't if I were Jesus. (laughs) And he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. But who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, we don't know for sure where they were standing in Caesarea and Philippi region, but Jesus' next statement gives us an idea that they might have been standing in sight of the rock of gods. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And Jesus continued his short lesson, calling, and the Greek literally means shouting at the top of his voice to the crowd around there and his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel will save it. What good is it for man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in Father's glory with the holy angels. This begs the question, what crowd is he talking to? (laughs) Could it have been the pan-worshippers? Any crowd from this region would not have been religiously Jewish. Was that last statement aimed at his disciples? who might have been embarrassed at the spectacle Jesus was creating. So in the Catholic tradition, um, they take Jesus' pronouncement in this verse to mean that Jesus was declaring that the church would be built on the authority of Peter and the other disciples. And it's true. They led the church early on, so this would be a possible interpretation. And in the Protestant tradition, um, which would be our tradition, they would take this uh, to say... That his church was to be built on the confession and recognizing him as the Messiah and the son of the living God. And this is also a valid interpretation as well. And it's supported by scripture. But Ray Vanderlyn and other Hebrew contextual scholars suggested a third interpretation, which may be just as, if not more powerful as the others, based on the context. Why would Jesus choose this place? The morally filthiest place within walking distance of his earthly region of ministry. Could it be possible that he took his disciples to the most corrupt and evil, possibly to say, this is where I want to build my church. I want to go to the most vile, the most repulsive, the most immoral places, the hells on earth, where God is not even known. I want you to go out into places that makes Caesarea and Philippi look tame. And that is where I want you to build my church. Because that is exactly what they did. They went to places in Asia Minor and to the ends of the earth where gods, small g, were worshipped in unspeakable and awful manners. And where Christians would be persecuted in a horrific manner. And they gave their lives doing exactly what they were told to do by the rabbi. I don't know about you, but when I hear the story of Caesare and Philippi, I understand in as context, it comes to life to me in a way it never had before. This is a strange situation for the disciples to find themselves in. They are in a far-off and unexpected place. It is at this place, an unexpected and even repulsive place, that God is calling his disciples. Christine Hung is the director of pastoral leadership for the Northern California District for the Church in the Nazarene. Here's a picture of Christine. Recently, she's been undergoing treatment for breast cancer. I've heard her speak twice in the past year. Most recently, I heard her at the women's clergy breakfast the same week my daughter Anna was born. She told the story of God's calling on her life. She tells her story like this: "I've always had a keen sense of God direction in my life. I rarely get a glimpse beyond the next bend, but much like a dangling a carrot in front of a donkey's nose, the Lord has led me one step at a time. It is an agreement I have with God. I trust Him for my every step, and He faithfully leads me to the next destination." I remember quite vividly the day I came to this understanding. It was at a public restroom in a city park, and I was barely out of high school. The floor was littered with streams of toilet paper and crumpled paper towels, tiptoeing through the mess. I was ready to get out of there when I heard the w- words from the Lord say, pick it up. It was quite audible, but I so deeply sensed in my heart that I might as well have heard it in my e- with my ears. To be Oh, it was not audible, but to be honest, I tried to ignore it and pretend not to notice it, but I heard it again, pick it up. And this time, I tried to reason with the Lord. I mean, there are people paid to do this sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, what possible good could come from it? My hands would be covered with germs. And the soap dispenser wasn't even working. Surely not, Lord. Pick it up. I had my hand on the door, ready to make my escape. But the Lord gently, persistently tugged at my heart. With a deep sigh, I turned around and I picked up every piece and I threw it all in the trash. What might seem like a silly illustration was a profound moment for me. I sensed that God was placing a calling on my life. I wasn't quite sure what sort of calling it was, but I knew the Lord was asking for obedience. And when I left the restroom, there was a great peace in my heart that the Lord was with me and would always be with me if I submitted to his will. I have felt that same peace whenever he prompts me to walk in obedience calling people out of the blue to pray for them, stopping the car in an unfamiliar neighborhood to pray for the community, starting a Bible study with strangers in an apartment complex, homeschooling our kids, moving to another country, buying a home, having a fourth child. In each of these faith-stretching events, the Lord opened the door, and I trustingly walked through. And Christina's story reminds me that even in everyday things, God is calling us to be obedient, And when we are obedient to say yes to the gospel, it takes us to unexpected and often the unwanted places in our world. But as we lay down our lives for the gospel, we gain new life, a life that is rich and full and leads us into mission. In 2008, my oldest cousin on my dad's side of the family died of a rare form of hip cancer that he'd been battling for several years. He was 23 years old. And he had to leave college in the middle to get treatment. And then when the cancer returned, my senior year of college, it ended up taking his life. And Spencer was a musician. who was someone I always looked up to. He was the oldest cousin. He was so cool. And one of the things he always said was, enjoy every sandwich. And it was his way of reminding us that life is short, and we're to enjoy the ordinary moments that we are given this is mustard seed language, seeing the kingdom of God breaking through in the ordinary. And Spencer wrote music, and one of the songs he wrote was called Sweet Surrender. And I still listen to this song when I'm having a hard day, and there's something about his words in the midst of darkness of cancer that bring me hope on my tough days. And toward the end of Spencer's life, he decided to give his way, away his music for free. He didn't want any royalties. He said, freely I was given this, so freely I'm going to give it away. So he toured around the country and he played in people's living rooms because he wasn't big enough to play in venues. He knew he would probably not going to be able to finish college and he decided to just make the best of his circumstance. He had no idea what his future was going to look like, so he just trusted God that he would provide, that, and he would provide peace. Now Spencer came to the realization that life is short and he decided to surrender his life over to God. But the fact of the matter is, all of our lives are short. And while total surrender can feel scary, when we're walking in obedience to God, he's going to take care of us. A few months ago, we heard a story from Holly and Kurt Johnson who decided to uproot their lives and their family and follow God's call to Copenhagen, Denmark. Holly is a good friend of mine, and me and Mikhail and Claudine have prayed together for years for each other because being a woman in ministry is hard. Sorry. I'm kind of emotional. This is an article from the Eurasian region of the Church of the Nazarene that talks about opening up a Um, the opening of a cafe in 2013 the church of the nazarene in denmark opened its new ministry in a neighborhood close to the city center of copenhagen and the name of the cafe is sweet surrender after its two nazarene cafes in poland the church spent months searching for a location and then the church members cafe volunteers and their friends spent three more months remodeling the space before it was ready to open it was hard work And while the volunteers were renovating the cafe, it drew a lot of interest in the neighborhood. As word spread that a religious group was involved, some wondered if that group was attached to a cult. But this misunderstanding provided many opportunities for the volunteers to thoroughly explain the cafe's mission and who the Church of the Nazarene is. Every day, we're asked by our customers why we do what we do. They are always impressed by our friendliness and acceptance. They feel when they come into the cafe, and of course, we share with them, it's God's spirit that makes all the difference. We are slowly opening the eyes of our customers to the love of Christ, one cup of coffee at a time, and we have a number of great conversations. In the few months we've opened, God is moving in the cafe, and the church has been challenged by the project to live out their mission beyond the walls of the church. While not everybody bought into the vision with the same excitement from the beginning, the support has grown. The mission has to be incarnational. As Wesleyans, we believe that we do not need to turn a coffee shop into a church to stand on holy ground. God is already at work in the lives of the people who make the coffee shop their place. In a way, we are guests who prayerfully make ourselves available in this divine human encounter. And since opening the cafe has created connections between the church and social organizations in the community— According to the pastor, in one of the first meetings, it was agreed upon that Sweet Surrender would live out a mission of charity, loving neighbors by meeting needs in the neighborhood. For instance, the cafes collects coffee, teas, cookies, children items for ministry among prostitutes called Nightlife Cafe. The cafe collects Bibles distributed to the women. And once a month, the team throws a birthday party for a child whose mother cannot afford to do it for herself. And some of those who volunteer in the cafe do not yet know Jesus, but are drawn to giving of their free time to work in the cafe. The cafe missions attracts them. Spending time working side by side with Nazarene volunteers provides opportunity to share about Jesus. And the Sweet Surrender team requests prayer that the team and volunteers will be in tune with God and humble and sensitive and courageous. They also give out English Bibles for African women who are caught in prostitution. The name of the cafe, Sweet Surrender, was somehow inspired by my, my cousin Spencer's song. And as we lay down our lives for the gospel, God uses it for God's mission in our world. Spencer and Christina are just two examples of people who have walked daily in trust and obedience, and God has been able to use their faithfulness they are people that God used in the middle of a hell hole. You see, there is a lie that our culture has bought into that material things are eternal. You can see it in the way we've done missions. We like to go into other countries and build buildings. Sometimes the, the buildings are not what the indigenous people have been asking for or needing. We spend a lot of time and resource. But what we miss is the activity of God as we live in this space. Now I'm not saying that buildings are not important. Clearly steeples are important. <laughs> <laughs> oh I lost my place. <laughs> I was really looking forward to that line. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um yeah. And I believe in glorifying God with beautiful architecture. And I'm not one to think, let's trash the earth because we're all going to go to heaven soon. How we care for the earth matters. And when we create beautiful architecture, we are imitating and reflecting God who is making all things new and was the first to create. And so I appreciate that Pastor Chris has been careful to lead us into a building that will not let us get in the way of engaging in the mission of God in our world. This building has been beautifully restored as a gift to our neighbors so that we can mobilize it to do the restorative work of God in our neighborhoods. We are not going to be bogged down by maintaining and sustaining more than we need and and instead free to be the good and useful neighbors God has called us to be. You know, I was actually born in the panhandle of Oklahoma, Shattuck, Oklahoma, and my dad was in ministry. We moved around a variety of places. Um, But I just remember always missing the community of the South. The beauty of the South is in the people. You know, when I lived in other parts of the country, I noticed how bad they were at community and hospitality. You all are excellent at it. But we've said it many times. We didn't plant a church in Midtown and love OKC because it's so great. We love it because it's so terrible. Tragedy consumes this area. Most of us don't see it because you have to go out of your way. You have to go out of your way to get to those hell holes. Honestly, it can be a real hell hole here. Do you know that in Oklahoma, one in six families struggle with hunger? One in four children in Oklahoma struggles with hunger every day. One in six Oklahoma seniors struggle with hunger. And with twice as many women in prisons as any other state, Oklahoma is the female incarceration capital of the United States. Oklahoma ranks among the bottom 16 states for women's mental health, meaning that Oklahoma women report experiencing poor mental health conditions, including stress, depression, eating disorders, at a higher average than any other state. And in 2015, it ranked among the bottom 10 states for women, economic security, and access to health insurance and higher education. And as a woman, I can't keep quiet about that, even though I have privilege. But Jesus has led us here. So I think we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be the faithful church and do the redemptive work of God here? That is something to pray about and discover together. But I'm going to confess that hearing what God has to say to us makes me nervous. It scares me. Because I'm only human. (laughs) And I get overwhelmed easily. I'm pretty sensitive. I'm pretty sheltered. And I cannot tell you how many times I sit and I worry about my future. You know, what does this mean for my daughter Anna if I stay here? What will my family do? Where will my kids go to school in a state that doesn't seem to value education well? How will I pay for college for my two children with the rising cost of tuition? What about 401k in retirement when we get sick of working? Or we're too old and dilapidated to work? I can relate with Peter in his, this passage. I often want Jesus to be a conquering king as opposed to a suffering servant. But God is not a God who tells us what is coming down the road. He's a God who asks for obedience today and the faith that he will provide our daily bread. And we can trust that when Jesus calls us to obedience, it will be unexpected and most often unwanted. But we can trust that we will gain our lives through it. As theologian Karl Barth observes, What seems to be unnatural from the perspective of the world becomes natural for the follower of Christ. The good news is, Jesus is the very costly incarnation of God. He is willing to pay the price. The Jesus of the gospel, the Jesus of Mark, went and led his disciples to Caesarea and Philippi, but he didn't send them there alone. He went with them. Whatever God is calling us to do, he will be with us. We don't have to be afraid. And he's already there. He's already gone ahead of us. It's good Wesleyans. We talk about provenient grace. He's already there at work. We're just joining in his mission. So we can trust that whatever hellhole we find ourselves in, God has already been there and will be with us in our suffering And the gospel goes to places where there's little or no gospel witness in our own community and around the world. It crosses boundaries to those with little or no gospel witness. God calls us to the margins of society, not because what they did or are doing, but because of who we are. Kent Brower is a Nazarene theologian, and he actually lived under me in a flat in Swaziland when I live there, and he's helped me with this. He wrote the commentary on Mark. I think he was writing it while I was there. Jesus calls his would-be followers to give their lives for him and for the gospel. They're to be more than martyrs for the cause. They are to participate in the announcement of the good news along with Jesus. And Rachel Held Evans says it this way, this is what, the, what God's kingdom looks like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gather around a table, not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry, because they said yes, and because there's always room for more. And the one who is calling us to lay down our lives and follow him is the one inviting you to this table. So you don't have to be rich or worthy. All you have to do is is be willing to receive this work of grace. And at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread, gave thanks, and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat it, remember me. The, then, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Anyone who is open to this gift, who wants to, to come and receive Jesus and remember that he goes with us and he's already ahead of us, is welcome to this table. We don't want any barriers, so our wine is gluten-free. Or no, not our wine is not gluten-free. I'm sorry. <laughs> Our bread is gluten-free, and our wine was non-alcoholic. I wanted to make sure you were paying attention. But when you come down this aisle, um, in the center aisle, with your hands cupped, ready to receive what is good, and that which comes from God, approach one of the servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, and be thankful. If for any reason you cannot make it down our aisle, wave your hand to Justin over here, and he'll come and serve you. Please, when you're ready, come.